Well, good morning, and if you're in the back, you now have a place to sit. We love our kids, and now we can find a seat for them. So there's lots of room in the front. That never happens at church. Oh, I'm still Rob. It's still good to see you, and we'll be starting in Exodus 35. We have two readings this morning. Uh, the first one is about the temple construction. So there'll be some descriptions here that you might be wondering about. Um, There might be some names that you're like, oh, that's an interesting name. But hang with me. It's it's a little bit long. But um, and then ask yourself, okay, why why did God include this and why did he go through so much detail? Exodus 35, starting in verse 4. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what, you have, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skin dyed red, and other types of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the lights, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. And all who are skilled workers among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering, clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases. The ark with its poles and its atonement cover and the curtain that shields it. The table with its poles and all its articles and the bread of the presence. The lampstand that is for light with its accessories. The lamps and oil for the light. The altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. The curtains for the doorway at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and its all its utensils. The bronze basin and its stand, the curtains with its courtyard and with its posts and bases. And the curtains for the entrance to the courtyard. The tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyard. And their ropes. The woven garments garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing, whose heart was moved, then came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for all the sacred garments. And all who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought all the things that were just mentioned, actually in great detail. But we'll skip down to verse 29. And all the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord freewill offerings for the work the Lord, through Moses, had commanded them to do. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. First of all, wouldn't it be amazing to have those skills? (laughs) Not just to work in stone or wood, but to be able to work in gold and silver and bronze as well. All kinds of design and crafts. And he has given both him and... I had it. Aholiab, there we go. 
Aholiab, son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. It's one thing to have a skill. It's another thing to know how to share a skill. And he has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, and embroiderers, read sewing, in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and the weavers, and all the skilled workers and designers. So Bezalel and Oholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary, are to do the work just as the Lord commanded. Where do, where do your best memories come from? When I think about my best memories, they actually come from my greatest commitments. One of my best memories is doing cross-country running in high school, in middle school, when uh, my choices were football and uh, cross-country. And I was 4'11 and 75 pounds, so football really wasn't going to be in my cards. Um, and I didn't like getting hit and knocked down, which I experienced in hockey a lot. So that was kind of the end of that. But I started running, and I was not a good runner. But there was someone slower than me on the team, so I kept running. <laughs> and little by little, I got better. But more than that, little by little, our team got better. And little by little, our coach, who actually did it because no one else would do it, actually started to like it. And little by little, he started actually learning how to coach cross-country. By the time I was in ninth and 10th grade, he was making workouts for us that were hard, workouts that were challenging to us. Little by little, our team moved up in the conference, and little by little, all of a sudden, by the time we're a senior, and we have seven seniors, one junior, and two sophomores on our varsity roster, we're in the top three and the top two go to state. And we worked so hard that year. We didn't make it, but it will always be one of my best memories because of the camaraderie and the commitment, even though it was filled with sacrifice. I think about my wedding day. If I knew now what I knew then, I would have told myself of lots of different things, and I'm happy to be married. But that was a big commitment. It was not filled with all, oh, we'll just love each other, and it'll be okay, and if we both love Jesus, then for sure it'll be okay. No, it is incredibly challenging commitment. But it's one of my greatest memories. Starting a church unofficially in 2010 and officially in 2011, has been a beautiful memory and continues to happen as we continue to meet here today. But it has been filled with all kinds of challenges, sacrifices, and commitments over and over. Might it be that actually the ingredients for some of the best memories in our life need some of the greatest commitment and sacrifice as well. So we come to a reading that is about constructing a temple where these people are being asked to give a free will offering 
out of their Egyptian booty, I might add. I mean, that's not the word that's in the text, but really they were slaves in Egypt and God caused them to have favor with the Egyptians. And so they gave them all this gold, all this silver, all this bronze. They gave them these linens and then they traveled with it for a year, ended up in this place. And after a year of being at this mountain, hearing from God, they get this work to construct this temple. And all of the details and the materials that are listed are things to make and craft a sanctuary, a sacred center of the community, if you will, where people will have access to God. They will bring this freely. And actually, if we kept reading... They continued to bring it so that Moses had to tell them to stop bringing it. I would love a day at church when the offering would go around and we'd have to go, okay, we got too much. (laughs) Maybe there's not a direct correlation. (laughs) And after it comes in, then the Lord says, see, I have chosen all of these skilled workers to create with what is brought forth. So hold that as we think about what it means to make room in our lives for Christ's plans. We've talked about what it means to make room in our lives for Christ's presence, Christ's people, and Christ's party. And we've been talking about what the critical commitments are that we need to keep and the personal practices that we need to employ. But today, we discover the difference that God wants to make in our lives as we make room for his plans. So with that, we run to our second reading. This one will be on the screen. It's a little shorter. It's from Matthew 9. And it's Jesus sending out his workers. It says in Matthew 9, that Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every kind of disease and sickness. Skipping down to verse 5, Jesus sent them out with these instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim the message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In fact, don't get... Get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no money bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. The worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person to stay at their house until you leave. As you enter their home, give it its greeting. Give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. Anyone who will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that home or town, shake the dust off your feet. So Jesus is in this time period where he's been traveling around, mostly to rural and suburban areas, not really hitting the big cities, if there is suburban areas in Jerusalem or around Israel at the time. 
He's in the streets telling the good news of God's kingdom, and he's teaching in their religious centers, their places of worship, and he's healing every kind of disease and sickness. A different kind of building, but I would say there is a similarity. Why was he doing this? Like, I think it's cool that he was doing it, but why was he doing it? I was at, in the last few days, I was at our annual meeting for our group of churches around the country and around the world, actually. And the president who was about to retire in September, who's been our leader for the last 10 years, he signed a letter with a bunch of other Christian leaders urging President Trump and his administration to change its course on its zero-tolerance policy at the U.S.-Mexico border that's been dividing children from their parents. Why did he do that? I'm not, I'm not really wanting to talk about the politics of it or whether you disagree or disagree. What I want you to think about is why he did that. So I got to know, because he told me, or he told us, he said, God gives children a family for protection and direction and provision. And it's traumatic whenever a family security is not in place for whatever reason. Given the broad discretion of the government in these cases, separation should only take place in the most cautious, exceptionable circumstances, not under a zero-tolerance policy. And... As the president of our denomination, it was necessary to speak out on so many of our Hispanic brothers and sisters that are in our group of churches. So signing the letter was an expression of solidarity. Again, I'm not here to say he should have done it or shouldn't have done it. I'm here to say, why did he do it? And he's telling us why. I think the why matters. In the same way, why did Jesus do what he was doing? Why was he going around to these villages and proclaiming the kingdom of God? Why was he healing these disease and sicknesses? Well, the writer of Matthew actually tells us why he was giving these hope-filled words and these acts of healing. He says that when he looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I don't know how many of us grew up with sheep. Anybody? I'm just curious. Okay, few people. Yes, yes. I knew I liked you guys. <laughs> so, we might not understand what it means to be harassed and helpless like shepherdless sheep. But I think we can get this. So, grandma looks like she's really, great grandma looks like she's really loving Silas. So, we'll just put a picture of him up. But imagine, imagine baby Silas. After the service. Now, just what if, you have a lot of family and friends here, what if Sarah, the great mom that she is, thought Grandma was taking baby Silas home to their house for the celebration of the baptism? And what if Sarah thought Grandma was, but Grandma thought that Mike was? And Michael thought that Sarah was? So at 12.15 or 12.30 after our vision meeting, all of a sudden, you, you know, everybody's leaving, you go to the bathroom, you come out, nobody else is around, and you see baby Silas in the car seat sitting out in the hallway. 
Nikki wants to lock up, and you just look at him and go, oh, you would never do that. I hope you would never do that. That would be wrong. Because it's obvious that baby Silas, in that moment, is a shepherdless sheep. You would get on a phone, you would call, you would, you, would, you would send something out, you would do whatever you could until that little child, that Silas, had a mom or a dad there. See, something happens in our lives that the crowds, the word the crowds use is actually outcasts. Because the crowds are not cute, white, fluffy sheep, and they're not cute, pudgy Silas, the cheeks that you just want to nibble off. Oh, I love it. The crowds are the outcasts. They're like when I went downtown for our annual meeting and saw people that had signs that said, homeless, please help. And somehow I didn't see them like baby Silas. I didn't see them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I thought, well, maybe for some I did. But for some I thought, you could probably get a job. Do you really not have a shepherd? Do you not have someone to care for you? Because I want to make sure that I'm helping the people who really don't have a shepherd. That's just me confessing. But I think I'm not the only one. Somehow, the crowds don't look like little babies. The outcasts look like the people that should have shepherds. And we make that judgment. We make that evaluation. They would be people that we don't bother counting in our census. They would be people we wouldn't notice if they were missed in our worship service. And I wonder if they held up signs that said, outcast lives matter, what our response would be. That's why Jesus was doing what he was doing. And not only that, that's why he asks us to join in his plan. What does it look like? I think it looks like the movie that actually won Academy Awards called The Green Mile. That's the story of John Coffey, who's a 1935 inmate on Louisiana death row for falsely being imprisoned for taking the lives of two little girls. And in a moment, as he's sitting in prison, he develops a relationship, a friendship with a guard named Paul Edgecombe. They become close friends. I believe it's two nights or the night before he is set to be executed. And John and Paul have this tender conversation that describes just a little bit of why Jesus was doing what he was doing. Would you take a look? On the day of my judgment, when I stand before God and he asks me why, did I, did I kill one of his true miracles? What am I going to say? That it was my job. It was my job. To tell God the Father it was a kindness you done. I know you heard that word. I can feel it on you. But you ought to quit on it now. 
I want it to be over and done with. I do. I'm tired, boss. I'm tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. I'm tired of never having me a buddy to be with, to tell me where we's going to, coming from, or why. Mostly I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel in here in the world every day. There's too much of it. It's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. Can you understand? Yes, John, I think I can. I'm tired. I'm tired of being lonely. I'm tired of never having me a buddy to be with. I'm tired of not knowing where I'm coming from or why. And mostly I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel and I hear in the world. There's too much of it. Like pieces of glass in my head. Do you understand? Some of us would say, that there's too much darkness, but Jesus comes and he says, no, there is light, and light always overcomes darkness, and no matter how hard the battle is, and no matter what the darkness does, the light will always overcome the darkness, and he engages in it, and he sacrifices for it, and he calls others into it, and that's essentially the connection between Exodus 35 and Matthew 9, is there's a group of people that are just learning how to be a people, and he says, oh, if you just give, if you just willingly give, you might not be able to control all these resources that you offer, but if you trust the Lord in that, I will bring skilled people that will have the talents to use those treasures to make something beautiful that actually gives people a way to God. Jesus invites these disciples into his plans to preach and to heal, to bring the light into the darkness, to be people who show the way to God, that they don't get tired in the light, that they continue to bring themselves. And yes, we know that Jesus says, only go to these people. Only go to the lost sheep. Don't go to these people and don't go to these people, which sounds really exclusionary, if that's a word. Exclusive, thank you. Got to help me out. And yet, Jesus was also giving them what my wife and I like to say is the just right challenge. Like, if you let me win, and I know you let me win, I'm going to beat you down. But you better try. But don't smoke me so hard that I'm humiliated. Either way, it goes both ways. Jesus, I think, is giving them the just right challenge. Based on the time I've been with you and what you've seen of me, you can go to these people. You're ready to go to these people. I'm going to give you a focused mission, and you're going, to, you're going to be a part of this plan. And then, at the end of Matthew's message, he says, I've all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now it's not just the lost sheep of Israel, it's everybody. So don't hear exclusive in the whole thing. Hear just right challenge in this moment. But Jesus is saying, there's a great harvest. There is people, there are people 
that are ready to come into the kingdom of God and participate in the kingdom of God. It's not all about these two workers in Exodus 35, Bezalel and Ahilahab. It's about them teaching and bringing in all of these people who have skills. And by the way, two people who have amazing skills that God has created with a purpose, construct a temple that they never actually get to, or construct a sanctuary that they're never leaders in. But God sees, they get the lion's share of the message. The priest gets mentioned. It's the workers who are described. There are many of us in this room that if God was saying, hey, you know what Christ's plan is? He selects us. He, he selects us to connect us so that we'll reach those we never choose. And, and oh, I, I don't know if I can do that. And God gives them this mission, and they forget the first two parts. All they hear is, oh, I have to go to someone's house. I have to knock on the door. I have to ask if they'd let me come in. I have to talk about God and about God's kingdom. That sounds really hard. I don't think I want to do that. But they forget the first two parts. You can't do Christ's plan. If you do Christ's plan, the part about going and reaching out without the first two parts, you just get tired or bitter or exhausted. The first two parts, we've got to include, we've got to hear. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Desperate prayer. Christ's plan includes this desperate prayer. We know that we can't, I, I believe, that we cannot save someone's life. I mean, Physically, yes, but spiritually, no, God has to do that work. We can only do our part, but we have to ask for Christ to do his part. And when he does, watch out. See, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers. Why? Why? Because there's a great harvest, but only a few workers. Okay? So say it with me. Great harvest, few workers. Now, what do you think you should say after that? You could say, I'll help you. Great harvest, few workers. I mean, think about it. When have you been told by your boss to do something that, and not given the resources or the time to do it? What does your face look like? Come on now. Or do you just send like nasty instant messages about him to your friend? I'm just, I'm just I don't know. Great harvest, few workers. I don't know, what are we going to do? I had friends in high school that were on the football team that skipped practice for weeks at the football team because I grew up in a rural community in October. They ha- my high school friends would skip class, would miss assignments, would cut football practice because they had to drive a tractor or a truck because they had to get the harvest in. They willingly sacrificed their time and their hobbies and their classwork because they knew that their family or their extended family's livelihood depended on it. The harvest is great, and it's time-sensitive. And it's not really about agriculture. It's really about people who are ready to come into the kingdom of God and have no one to help them in. And we all have seen this. There are moments in people's lives where they're, they're ready. They're ready to come in. But there's no one there to let them in. 
And I don't think it's a feeling, but if you will, a feeling passes, or that moment subsides. Or in agriculture, the fruit rots on the tree and falls off. Or the corn dries out. The harvest is great and time-sensitive. It's not guilt. That's just reality. So ask God to send more workers into his field. That we've got to have this desperate prayer. Friends, um, in a few minutes, we're going to have a vision meeting and you're going to get to hear about some of the ways that God has been at work. You're invited to stay. There has been desperate prayer that has been happening. There has been prayer in the morning before service that is powerful. There has been prayer after service that has been life-giving. There has been prayer on the first of the month for the ministries around here. There have been prayer times that have happened outside of that. There have been responses to people's prayer requests. There is more and more prayer, and I believe it's why we are healthier than we've ever been as a church. It's amazing, and it's been an amazing part of my life. And I just would invite you to pray one minute every day for your church. And the great part about one minute every day is if you miss one day, you can do two the next day, and it's not like, oh, I can't do that. Just a minute on, God, would you, would you work through the people of restoration? Would you work through me, and I make myself available to you? Would you give us the resources we need that if, just like Exodus 35, that if people bring in and offer their treasures willingly, not forcibly, just offer them, that you will also bring the workers to build and create a way for more people to come to Christ. Just like that. He doesn't just select us to connect us, to reach those we never choose. He gives us the authority to do so. We, we go off and we do the work, and we're tired and we wonder why. Well, maybe it's because we didn't pray, or maybe it's because we didn't use this amazing authority that Jesus has given us. We skip right over that. Jesus called the 12 to himself and gave them authority to drive out the demon, drive out the evil spirits, and to heal every kind of disease and sickness. A heavenly authority, a royal authority, a kingdom authority to use in good and healing ways. This is how he has given each one of us with his spirit to do so. It's not hard. It's not even, well, it's scary, if you will, because we are attached to an ultimate power that brings good, not dominance. This is what Christ's plan involves. And he gets to select who designs what. We bring ourselves, and we get to experience amazing, amazing things. Um, and it's a sermon that only really makes sense if you hear the other part of it in the vision meeting. So there's your teaser. But you'll hear some stories of people whose lives have been changed because others simply made themselves available but didn't shy away when it got hard or they didn't know what to do. They brought Christ's authority with them and they showed up with what they had and he multiplied it into amazing things. And the kingdom of God is growing and better for it. It's something that once you experience it, you want to do it over and over and over again. So just a couple of teasers about what I think it means for us as we go into our future. I think Christ is calling us to continue to create more places where everyone can be known. 
Like one of our goals is to have our connect, our small groups and Bible study groups and disciple groups actually feel and understand more of what each one is different in and what each one is similar in so that, and then create more groups so that everyone can have a place where they can grow with God and be known based on where they're at and what they need. Another one of our goals that fits into this is to recruit and develop some female small group leaders for our student ministry so that our girls especially can feel more known and connected to Jesus and each other. Our, our guy student ministry volunteers did a great job last year. We want to bring along some, some ladies to love our girls and to, to get what it's like to be a girl because let's be honest, most guys do not understand what it's like to be a girl and I'll just leave it at that. And that we would continue to involve more people in more ministry to find out where their niche and their gifts and their passions are. Because when you give out of your gifts and out of your passions, it's not work, it's not draining. It's life-giving. It's transformative. And it does involve this intentional reaching out. He asks us to pray for more workers that they would be sent out. Not that they would sit in a group, not that they would sit behind a computer, but that they would be sent out. And so Jesus actually just tells them to do what they've seen him doing this whole time. And he gives them the joy and the authority to do it. And we walk into it. And some of us are like, ooh, that's really scary. Or ooh, that sounds like a lot to do. Or oh, I'm not sure if I have time for that. But really, one of the goals that we have for the next year is that we would better define, that we would clarify and redefine the ministries of outreach, service, and mission into simply reaching out locally and globally. That reaching out would mean engaging with those around you that are disconnected or distant from Jesus and his community. And this fall, at least The plan is, this fall, to learn five practices that really would enable us to do that that are actually pretty normal and natural in your life. And we have a little video that explains it. And then we'll talk about it more at the vision meeting. God has always sent his followers to reach the lost and restore the broken through blessing. First through Abraham and now as followers of Christ, we have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to the world. And one of the most important ways that we are called to bless our world is inviting others into a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. Bless is a new way of thinking about loving our neighbor as a natural part of our everyday life. We do this through five simple missional practices to help our unchurched family and friends journey towards faith in Christ. So we'll talk about those five practices in a minute, but as the band comes up, I wanted you to hear the normal and natural part of everyday life. Because just like Exodus 35, God was saying, anyone whose heart is willing, offer this wasn't forced. Anyone whose heart is willing, offer this. And Jesus saying, I want you to go in my authority and with desperate prayer, 
and do the things you've already seen me do. And I'm giving you the authority to do it. You've watched me do it. It's telling people good news and demonstrating the ways in which it is at work. This is who God calls us to be, and when we do it, we experience transformation ourselves. I invite you to consider those best memories and those greatest commitments and what it would look like to build that sacred center, a way for people to find God in normal, natural ways here and beyond. Would you pray with me? God, help us to hear your spirit above my words, to hear your word and your blessing. God, to see crowds, outcasts, and have compassion on them. God, to not hear ancient words, but to hear that people who are diseased or people who have leprosy, God, that they might today just be people who feel very left out and excluded and having lunch with that coworker that feels left out or that classmate might be the most godly thing that we could do in the next week of our lives. God, we also need to remember that you are the Lord of the harvest, that you made a way, that you gave us the authority, and that the only reason any of us can stand before you is you, Jesus, giving your life for us. Let us never forget that you were the one that made the way. And let us consider what we could offer, God, to your kingdom, to your purposes. God, as we come in offering and in worship, and then a few minutes in our meeting, how we could be involved with you to change the world.